And as we continue now on this first day of the forthcoming week, we're looking forward to what God has in store for us. Amen? Amen. I want to invite this morning a guest and a couple of our very own this morning who will be introducing our guest. We have a mission adventure coming up in September of 2018, and I've asked Adam and Stella to come and introduce our guest, Brian Heerwagen uh, from Delta Ministries International. Let's give it up for these guys as they come up to introduce. Well, uh, before I introduce Brian, well, I guess he already introduced Brian, but before I give him the microphone, I just wanted to share with you guys that this is a short-term mission opportunity for our church, uh, and it's had a huge impact in my life. Uh, I started, I think Stella might have mentioned last week, for those of you who were, that, that were here, uh, I was single, she was single, um, but it was a huge part of my uh, growth spiritually, going and serving in another country, and Stella and I met there, so it had a huge change in my life, um, but just uh, being able to be a part of a ministry that was so well put together and clearly in line with what God wanted me to do um, and seeing the impact that it has for the Italians over there, um, it's, it was just amazing, and I recommend it to everyone, and Brian is the CEO of Delta Ministries, and he and his team organized this trip a year in advance, uh, which is why he's speaking to you today. And so it's my pleasure to give him the microphone. Thank you very much. You guys might want to wait to clap till I'm done to see if it's still clap worthy. You never know. You clap first and then it's, well, anyway. Yeah, so Delta Ministries, we're one of many organizations that are doing short-term missions. Let me take one second to give you a glimpse into what the short-term mission world looks like. Most people in church think about short-term missions in the way that it affects them. But you need to know that there are over 2 million people a year going out from North America on short-term missions. That's a mission that's four days to, say, two or three years long. 2 million a year from our country. That's huge. There are over 100,000 churches like yours that send short-termers. That's a recent Christianity Today survey that was done, and they believe it's over 100,000 churches like yours. There are also about 5,000 sending entities like what I work for, like Delta Ministries. It could be a denominational headquarters or a major mission or actually specifically a short-term mission sending entity. So it's a big movement and a really strategic movement in the gospel, and we are thankful to be part of it. It's taken a long time to figure out how to do it well and how to do it in tandem with long-term workers, but we are reaching more now because of short-term missions than they could have back in the day when there wasn't much of that going on. So I'm really thankful to be a part of it, and I'm glad your church, a very mission-minded church, is even willing to consider how they might engage more directly in the short-term mission movement and therefore in the uh, mission movement around the world. One of the newer trends, or I would say strategies in short-term missions, is for churches and organizations to partner long-term with folks in other places. And in this case, I'm representing, as they've already told you, the partnership in Italy. We're partnered with two churches in southern Italy in the Naples area. And this has been going on since 1998. So if you do the math, our next big festival coming is the 20th year a partnership, and this one will be the biggest ever. I'll tell you more about it in just a couple minutes. But first, let me help you understand some things about Italy. Now, I know when you hear somebody has to go do a short-term mission in Hawaii, you're usually like, yeah, right. Uh, somebody's got to do it, right? And Italy doesn't seem too far off from that. There are things we think of right away when we think about Italy. And I'm going to tell you what I think most people think about when it comes to Italy. One is history. This idea that Italy has a rich and vast history, it's not inaccurate. You all know about Caesar and the Roman Empire, which I didn't understand the magnitude of that until I saw a map of its biggest day when it was throughout most of Europe and all of Northern Africa. Incredible. And it was the, the seat of all of that was from Italy. We think about history. Also, we think about family, amore, and relationships, right? I mean, the, and so it's true. Italian families are big. They're close. They may not get along, but they still hang out. They still eat together. They still almost always live together or in the same area. And the further south you go, the longer they stay put. 
right where they live now. And so I'm going to ask you guys to do something just now. It's going to be a little bit of a stretch for some of you. But down in the southern part of the country, in fact, this is how warm the relationships are. This is how they greet each other when they say hello. Go ahead and demonstrate for us. Ah, and you might think all that kissy stuff, it's for them because they're a husband and a wife. But guess what? Everybody does that. Ciao, Adam. So I'm going to ask you to stand up and find someone near you. It can be a stranger if you're brave or someone you know. Always head right. Go ahead and stand up, say ciao, and greet someone the way the Italians do. Start on the right. Very good. Some brave people. That's good. All right. Who knew if I turned a church loose to do kissing that it would take this long to get you back. Pretty scary. Look at you. And I saw some of you, you didn't head right first, you headed left. Okay, remember, you head right. It's like when you're driving, you always go to the right. I saw a couple of you who both headed the same direction. That was embarrassing. How many of you did that? No, don't show me your hands. But you know, when we think about family, we think about all this warm culture, this noise and chaos, it's true. That's Italy. Another thing we think of with Italy, of course, is tourism. There's Venice, there's Florence, there's Rome, there's Sicily, all, Sicily, all these beautiful places in Italy, it's true. And another thing we think about when we think of Italy is the food and gelato. How many of you guys have had true Italian gelato? Is it not the best? Man, the further south you go, the better the food gets. And these things are all true, but I want to introduce you to the Italy that I've gotten to know. And it's going to tell you about why we do ministry there. First of all, Italy as a whole is measured to be less than one-half percent evangelical. When you think about the rich history of this country, in fact, that it was in many ways foundational to our Christian faith, it's a little shocking to find this out. In fact, it's technically one of the least evangelized countries in the world. Isn't that amazing? They need the message of Jesus. They need people who go into outreach. Another thing I think about when I think about Italy, especially in the south in the region that we're in, is a 56% unemployment rate among those who are 18 to 35 years old. Why would you go to college? Why would you ever choose a career? Why would you have any hope for your future? If where you live, there is no hope. There is tremendous financial struggle and tremendous hopelessness. And you'll notice if you can read the small print down below, our own uh, unemployment rate in the USA in 2017, right now it's between 4.2 and 12%. We don't suffer or understand what they're going through there with their 56% unemployment rate. They live in a difficult, if not failing, economy. They are struggling with materialism, even though that they don't have a lot of funds. The lust of the world, there's issues with drugs, especially when there's hopelessness. And in fact, the region we serve in was recently called the biggest drug-pushing locality in the world. Very difficult place. And then that makes me think about organized crime, or in this case, the Camorra. How many have heard about the Mafia? Yes. How many of you have heard of the Camorra? Not as many, but it's another family branch. It's like the Mafia. It's smaller but more vicious and more difficult to, to deal with. The area that we're going to be serving in, actually is the seat, the very headquarters of the Camorra. And where we will be doing our festival, you can actually see their headquarter buildings. They're massive and daunting. I'll let you know, though, that in the area where we're serving, 86% of the people who live in Scampia are either directly or indirectly affected by the Camorra. Basically, they all are. And it's a tremendous, tremendous challenge. So when I think about Italy, I remember all those great things. But I also have to face the fact that this is a very, very dark region. Together with the churches in Italy, many churches in the States have partnered for long term to serve and to do outreach. And the single most successful outreach method that these churches in Naples have found to work is festival. We started it in 1998 and continued on almost every year until now our 20th year will be holding the largest ever in the villa or the large public square of Scampia, one of the most popular areas. They've had as many as 20,000 there before, and they've also had major uprisings there before. Everyone knows where this villa is, and we'll be serving there, proclaiming the name of Jesus through word and deed. This will take place for nine nights in a row. We're hoping for up to 200 Americans. There'll be many other churches involved, and we've held positions open for your church so that you can put together a team and join with all these others who go there to serve. I want you to understand about this particular festival ministry. While we're there, night after night, people will come forward. And for us, it's a little confusing because you'll see lots of people come forward. But if one person comes forward, family will also. 
Even if they don't know why they're coming forward, they're going to support their loved one. Remember, Italy, family. They're also going to come forward with someone in the church who says, I don't know you, but I'll go forward with you. Or more likely, it's someone from the church who does know this individual. So for one person who comes forward to receive Christ, you may see three, four, or five people coming up. See, Italy is a very Catholic country. And in fact, in the South, I would say to be Italian is to be Catholic is to be Italian. Is to be, it's all run together. And for someone to stand up and come forward during, during an altar call and say, I will choose Christ, is like saying that I'm no longer Catholic, that I'm no longer Italian. Now, they don't really think that way, but it, their heart feels that way. And it's a huge sacrifice and a deep commitment to walk forward to receive Christ. And many do, not only the nights of the festival, but literally almost every Sunday for the year following. It's an incredible outreach. Now, you may think, why do we still go after all these years? Do they really still need us? And the answer is absolutely yes. When we first started in 1998 and in the early years, I would say we were about 80% of the program. This organizational style and all that we brought to the table made a festival possible. That means they were about 20%. Over the years, though, it reversed. They're more like 80% of the ministry, and we're 20%, but they can't do it without us. In fact, they would say they cannot not do festival. They have to do festival. It is the primary outreach for them, and they can't do it without us. We bring a new energy. We bring a cause to the churches. We have relationships over all these years now. They live for these events. This is how they do mission, and this is how they do outreach. Now, I'm going to share with you one story, and then we're going to watch a short video. Uh, I've been going ever since 1998, so I've been involved in all of the ministries. And one particular time, I was able to stay in 2015 for about a week after it was all over. And after they're done with festival, they have a baptism service. Now, baptisms to the very religious in this part of Italy is one of the most important things that a family will participate in. Of course, usually it's in the Catholic Church, so they have feasts afterwards, and in, during the service, they all come dressed in their finest, and they invite aunts and uncles and other people from all over the region to come watch this person be baptized. So when a new believer is being baptized in an evangelical church, what do you think happens? They all still come, even though they don't know why they're going to that church, because family is still more important. So the church is packed out, and I expected that. People in their finest clothes, almost standing room only, and they do this service. And they also share Christ, and people come forward. Now, in 2013, we got to hang out with a young man named Salvatore. He is as Neapolitan as they come. In fact, his Neapolitan dialect is much better than his Italian language. And he was one rough kid with a bad family past. And when he got saved, it was dramatic. It affected other people, too. Literally, he was transformed. And he hung out with us. He hung out with the church. He was growing with the Lord. But not long after that, he derailed spiritually and badly. And he was away from the church for a while. And in 2015, early in the year, he turned his life back over to Christ. But by then, he had met someone. They had become pregnant outside of marriage. And so they rushed through and got married. And they had a little baby boy. But she was not a believer. But in this particular year, 2015, at this service, I watched as Salvatore came forward with his wife. They'd been at festival every night, and she heard the message and had seen what had happened in her husband when he turned his life back to Christ and knew this is real, and I want this. And I'll tell you, this guy, Salvatore, he's about my height and about twice as wide in the shoulders. He's huge. And as he walked out following his wife, he was sobbing because his wife entered the kingdom of heaven, the family of Jesus. And this happens again and again as family members turn their life over to Christ. Festival is the best means for mission. It's good for you if, you're never, if you've never been on a mission trip or if you've been on a lot of them. This is a good place for you. We need people like you. We need up to 200 people in their places for you. I'm going to close with a short video. It'll give you a glimpse into the daytime hours of festival, though by the time night falls there, the place is packed. When we're done with the video and service, you can come out to the lobby outside the doors there. There's a table. We'll be right there. And Adam and Stella and I will be there to answer questions about festival. I would just like to challenge you, if God's calling you, don't worry about how much or if you can get time off work. Obedience is more what it's about. We're asking you to say, Lord Jesus, is this where you want me in 2018 in September? And if so, I will say yes. 
Expressing your interest to Adam and Stella does not sign you up to go, but we would love for you to put your name, email, and phone number so you can start that conversation and begin that prayer process of discerning God's plan for you personally and for you as a church. So consider this a formal invitation to an amazing ministry in 2018. And with that, let's roll the video. Thanks. been watching images from a mega evangelistic event that we hold in southern Italy. We bring a lot of Americans over to work with a couple hundred Italians from two of the evangelical churches in the Naples area, and together we call this festival. It's nine nights in a row with a lot of activities that draw in the public and then give an opportunity for them to come to the platform for a grand finale each night and hear about the gospel clearly presented. You may be wondering, why Italy? It's a country with a rich history, phenomenal culture, amazing food. But you know, it's less than one half of 1% evangelical, and we need to be here. We need to come and establish the relationships among those in the church and with those in the community. So this is a fantastic opportunity. It's great for entry-level short-termers, or maybe you've had a lot of experience. It's still an incredible opportunity for churches, for families, and for individuals. And so we're looking for people like you. We'd love to have you go to NaplesAlive.com to find out more information, and I hope to see you in Naples, Italy. Ciao. That was awesome. Praise the Lord. Invite you to uh, open your Bibles. Uh, You know that we are beginning a study in the book of Exodus. And as you are turning in your Bibles, I'm gonna have you put your finger in Exodus, but actually open to Acts chapter seven. And while you're doing that, a couple quick thoughts. Number one, kingdom builders. By way of reminder to everyone, if Hillside is your home, we are in the middle Well, not quite the middle. We're on the front end of a fourth quarter fundraiser for our church building. And we're calling it Kingdom Builders. And this is more of a, uh, what I would call a movement within our church. We would really like everyone to be a kingdom builder, perpetually, if you will. And we have a $50,000 matching gift. And we would love for you to fill one of these out, prayerfully considering what you might do in this fourth quarter above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings for the kingdom building of that uh, facility. Then also we have our Arrows Out Culture, which is our study in the book of Acts, but this is an opportunity for you. It's a pathway of engagement and involvement in what our church is about and who we are and what we're doing. So we wanna encourage you, take a moment, There's information on the back where you can fill this out, and if you'd like more information on how to be involved and engaged, we would love to hear from you and get you connected, if you will, okay? Um, Today, I'm going to take a few minutes, and we're gonna look at an overview and an outline, if you will, of the book of Exodus, and then we're going to look at Stephen, the first martyr of the church in the book of Acts, and his discourse, if you will, his sermon to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin just before he was martyred for the Lord because he gives us a picture of really Genesis and Exodus and the beginnings, if you will, of a family and then the outgoing of a nation. And so we'll look at that in just a moment. So. Today, a theological overview, and then next Sunday, Pastor Matthew will be doing, giving, if you will, a historical overview of the book of Exodus. So Exodus, the second book of the Bible. It's the second book of Moses, or the second book of the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah in the Hebrew, or the law. 
These five books, these first five books of the Bible, uh, are authored by Moses himself. Most of us have heard of Moses, and Moses authored these first five books, Exodus being the second. There is some argument against the authorship of Moses. However, I would encourage all of us as students of the Word of God to be reminded that the best interpreter of the Word of God is the Word of God. And Jesus himself quotes from all five of the books of the Pentateuch or all five books of the law and attributes authorship to Moses himself. So Jesus defines who the author is. Jesus is God, and so when God says Moses, we can be sure that Moses wrote those five books. So, the authorship. The theme of these five books really is redemption. Redemption. Now, the 66 books contained within the canon of Scripture are all about redemption. But what we see in the book of Exodus is God's deliverance. He sends a deliverer for the children of Israel, Moses. And Moses is the one who helps with their exodus out of the bondage in Egypt. So by way of thematic or outline, Exodus, 40 chapters, is divided really into what I would say five areas. The first six chapters would be the need for redemption, enslavement, Israel's enslavement to Egypt, and by way of type, that is like our enslavement to sin. Chapters 7 through 11, God's might and his ability to perform redemption. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Our deliverance is through his ability. And we see in chapters 7 through, the, uh, through 11, the plagues, if you will. Chapters 12 through 18, the character of redemption. The character of redemption. In other words, how God is going to redeem his people. And so we see the Passover lamb, and the mention, if you will, the blood purchase. What we would find also in Exodus and books following is those ordinances that were actually established, many of which were established even in the Garden of Eden, we find that they are now going to be written down in a regulatory sense, if you will, and made into law. Chapters 19 through 24, a significant piece, and I would say for us, a challenge, if you will, because it's going to deal with the duty which redemption implies. The duty which redemption implies. And that duty also is for you and I, and the duty is obedience. Obedience. I appreciate, Brian, how you encouraged folks. It's really not about all of the methodology or the where but it's responding in obedience to the call of God. Many of you are sitting here this morning and God is challenging you and calling you to engage in a global worldview in being a part of the Great Commission and going on a short-term mission trip. I think statistically we could demonstrate that the majority of full-time field workers that are on the mission field, full-time, realized their call to global missions while participating in a short-term mission trip. There are likely some who are sitting here right now who God is calling to 
global vocational missions right now. And you may be one who realizes the call of God overseas while walking in obedience and attending a short-term mission trip. So just like in these chapters, chapter 19 through 24, the duty of, of redemption, the implication is to obey that we would come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? No doubt if you're here this morning and you've been serving the Lord from some, for some time, you've discovered that obedience is not as easy as it sounds when it comes to the lordship of Jesus and submitting to the word of God. So we get to walk with the Israelites and we get to learn with the Israelites the scripture says that these things happen. Paul, writing to the church, said these things, these occurrences, these events, these historical events happened and they were written down for our admonition. In other words, we can learn both from the successes of the nation of Israel and we can learn from the error of the Israelites and so it can admonish us in our obedience to the Lord. Chapters 25 through 40, his provision for our failures. Can I get an amen that God makes provision for our failures? Hallelujah, hallelujah. The tabernacle. The tabernacle was established for Israel. For Israel as a recognition that they would have stumblings. Just like God knows you and I will have stumblings, he's provided for our redemption. He's provided for our forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And so it was a place, the tabernacle, a place for cleansing and the reestablishment of fellowship with God himself. Again, just as Jesus is our reestablisher of fellowship with the Father. So, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church of God in Corinth, he wrote concerning Israel. In chapters 9 through chapter 11, the Apostle Paul draws our attention again, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, to the nation Israel. In fact, it's interesting, those of you who are uh, students of the Word and you know of biblical instruction and you have perhaps attended a Bible college or a uh, biblical university and you've taken a course in systematic theology, you would recognize that there is one area of systematic theology that oftentimes is neglected and that subject matter is Israelology. God is and intends to continue working with the nation Israel. And God has a future. The church, we do not, we as evangelical believers do not believe in replacement theology. The church has not replaced Israel. God has a purpose and a plan for the nation Israel. He reminds us of that in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And it is there that he says to us one of five times, I've said this many, many times from the pulpit that five times in the New Testament, the, the Spirit of God inspires the Apostle Paul to use this verbiage. He says, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning this mystery, chapter 11, verse 25 refers to. Now, before we go into the mystery that he's referring to, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's what the Spirit of God is saying through the Apostle Paul. The root word of ignorant is to ignore. So we are admonished by God the Spirit in the Word of God no less than five times in Paul's writing. And this particular time, fellas, sisters, don't ignore this fact. Don't ignore this. And so it would be an admonishment to us this morning to not ignore God's attention, if you will, in reference to the nation Israel. And it is in Romans chapter 11 that just prior to this scripture that he refers to the cultivated olive tree. 
And next he references the wild olive branch. The cultivated olive tree is a type or symbol of the nation Israel, and the wild olive branch is the Gentile nations. And he references the wild olive branch being broken and grafted in to the cultivated branch. It's a type of Israel and the church being apart. But we're not the cultivated, we're the branch coming in, and God's attention will be fully on the branch and the root system, the nation Israel. So we're the grafted ones in. And the mystery is that typology, the typology. And so in the Old Testament, we are admonished not to neglect the typology and seeing the redemption not only of the nation Israel but of the Gentile nations as well. For the scripture declares in Psalm chapter 40 and verse 8 that the fullness of the scroll is written of me. That's in reference to the Messiah. And the Messiah's work is redemption. And so we find these 66 books, yes, all are referring to the redemptive work of God. And we see in type these redemptive things all throughout Scripture, in Exodus very specifically. Here are some types, if you will, that we will encounter as we walk through the book of Exodus. Israel itself is a type of the church, God's chosen people. Look at your neighbor and say, aren't you glad to be included in God's chosen people? That's a whole lot to say. <laughs> We're chosen, praise be to God. Bondage, the bondage of the children of Israel in Egypt is a type of you and I prior to our salvation being in bondage to sin, the bondage of sin. Egypt Egypt in Scripture and throughout Scripture is a type of the world and the world's systems of which we were a part of prior to grace, the grace of God through faith. If your faith today is in Jesus, the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven Praise be to God. We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are passing through. This world and its systems are passing away. We are simply passing through. The scripture goes on to tell us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Thanks be to God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are of, we are not, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. So Egypt, a type of the world. Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a type of our adversary, the devil. He is a type of, if you will, the enemy of the Lord, Satan himself. Moses, again, Moses is a type of Christ, the deliverer. God has sent his deliverer to his chosen one. And there are many, many other types of Christ that we will encounter as we walk with the children of Israel through these times in the 40 chapters contained within the book. Now, some of those would be like the burning bush. Most of us have encountered the story of the burning bush some fascinating things in type of that whole encounter of Moses and the burning bush. Super excited about moving into chapter three at some point in time. The Passover lamb. You know in John's gospel and throughout the gospels that John the Baptist, when John the Baptist saw Jesus down by the river Jordan as he was there and he was with his disciples. He said, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. A reference to that Passover lamb. 
The crossing of the Red Sea, by type, the transition of moving from death to life, from the bondage of sin into the promised land, if you will, are a type of our becoming born again and that born again experience. The manna that is provided by God, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The smitten rock, and then ultimately, the tabernacle. And interestingly enough, the tabernacle is probably the most written about subject matter in the entirety of Scripture. Over 40 chapters have dedication to the tabernacle. God is saying something in the tabernacle, and we will be looking at that in much more detail. So what I'd like to do, since you have your finger this morning in the book of Acts, I'd like to read, if you will, Stephen's account. Stephen's account of Genesis and Exodus. It's a synopsis. It's 52 verses. And we'll read together this morning these scriptures. I'll read. You follow along. And he highlights some very significant things, of which one of we will look at in a little bit of detail before we come to the communion table. So, invite you to pick up with me in Acts chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? You see, Stephen was on trial. And he is now qualifying this question. Are these things so? So he, Stephen, said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, God says, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave the covenants of excuse me, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. Let me pause here for just a moment. If you're here this morning and you're in trouble, Maybe you're in, a, in an oppressive place. Maybe you're in a difficult trial. Maybe you're in the midst of hardship or heartache. I want to encourage you to spend time reading through, you could read through Psalm 34. David, while really in a place of running from Saul, the king of Israel, early on, he made his way down to Gath where King Achish and the Philistines were, and they identified that this was David. And is this not the one whom it is said, Saul his thousands and David his tens of thousands? And they brought him before Achish the king. And David penned out regarding that circumstance. It says, this poor man cried out to the Lord. Cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his troubles. I want you to be aware that just as Joseph was in trouble, just as David was in trouble, if you're here this morning and you're in trouble and you're in a place of hardship, Cry out to the Lord. The Lord sees, the Lord hears, the Lord knows your sorrows, and he has provided for your deliverance. Let's continue. Again, verse 10, and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine 
And great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and his fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the house or from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in, the wor in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you, have, as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And for 40 years passed, excuse me, and when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dare not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Let's stop there for a moment. The Exodus. We hear Stephen's discourse of how God sent Moses as deliverer. I think the key phrase that I see and I want to draw our attention to this morning as we are shorter on time this morning is that portion in verse 34 of this chapter in Stephen's discourse. And it reverts back to Exodus chapter three and verse seven. And it is this, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. For us this morning to recognize that we, like Israel, are God's chosen people. We are in this world, but we are not of this world, but we are told by Jesus himself, our commander-in-chief, the author and finisher of our faith, he says, in this world you will have trouble. How many of us could attest this morning to the very nature that in this world we will have trouble? Some of you who are sitting here this morning have already experienced great difficulties, hardship, heartache, trouble, 
things that grip your heart, things that would cause you to question and say, God, why? 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 And albeit there are not answers to our questions often as to why, we can be certain that God is the God of all comfort and he brings comfort in times of great distress and he brings peace in the midst of the storms of life. He is the deliverer. I think it is comforting to know that God sees. God sees. The Bible tells us in Psalm 34 that the eyes or the eye of God is on the righteous. The eye of God is upon the righteous. We're reminded of that time and time again throughout the Psalms and a many number of the Old Testament stories where God sees the oppression of his people. And certainly in Exodus chapter three where we have this powerful picture of God's deliverance. It says he sees. I'm mindful also that he hears. His ear is attentive to the cry of the righteous. I shared with a brother this morning and I was reminded because I think it's in Psalm 54. He gathers our tears in his bottle and they are written in his book. You may be here this morning and you would say, nobody knows how I feel. Nobody knows how I feel. I want you to know that is not true. For your Savior knows how you feel. He knows. He knows. The Bible tells us that he not only sees, he hears those cries. Chapter 3 reminds us that he knows our sorrows. He knows your sorrow. He knows your heartache. And that would be something, even if that was just the end of it, that he sees, he hears, and he knows. But that's not the end of the story. And that's not the end of your story. That's not the end of where you are. You see, in the midst of your trouble, that's not the end all. And the fact that God does know, that's not the end. The scripture tells us that he has come down to deliver us. Just like the psalmist said, David said when he was facing Achish and certain death, this poor man cried out to the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and you have that sense. This poor man, this poor woman, this sorry state of affairs, and you're crying out. Sometimes our cry outs, there are no words. I'm so thankful that the New Testament reminds us that it is the Spirit of God who interprets our groanings, our groanings, even when there are not words for the things that we are going through. God reads and understands our hearts. Where I cannot articulate what might be going on in the midst of my circumstances so that I might even try and explain it to one of my friends so that I could gain some Comfort, if you will, through a horizontal relationship. Sometimes words escape and I cannot even articulate. I'm so thankful that this vertical relationship that I have with God the Father through Jesus Christ, he understands when I can't put it into words. Thanks be to God. And he has come to bring deliverance, to deliver us out of all of our troubles. He hears and he comes to deliver. I don't know how the Lord intends to deliver you. And maybe you're here today and you're not in the midst of trouble. You can be certain because of what Jesus said, there will be trouble when you face your trouble. I don't know how and others don't necessarily know how God will deliver. They can only explain to you how God has delivered them in the midst of their trouble. But we can mutually encourage one another with the word of God and with the testimonies of God of how God has delivered. You see, God is faithful and his word is good. His word is golden. He will deliver because he does.
So I want to encourage you this morning in regards to that. And will you take time this morning when you make your way to your home and you have food together with family members, I want to encourage you to open up the Word of God to Psalm 34. Take a few moments and just before you get ready to eat or before you take that first bite, will you read through that portion of Scripture? You know, it reminds us there also that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Thanks be to God that there are angels about us and they are ministering spirits unto men. God is working and he's working for and on our behalf. So this morning as we come to the communion table, no matter what your need may be, will you come with confidence knowing that God knows where you are and he has made provision for you. I want to invite those who are going to be serving communion this morning to make their way here, and I'm going to invite Pastor Matthew to come, Pastor Dennis and the worship team, if you would come back. We serve an open communion, and we want to encourage you to come and be a part of communion this morning. Next month, in the month of December, we're going to be inviting our children in to be with us during our communion time. We're going to be inviting all of the children from Toddler Town and Kidstown to join us during our communion time, and we will do that on a regular occurrence from here on out because we want our kids to be with us during the time of communion, that they might participate with us as a family. But this morning, by way of reminder, we serve an open communion. And as you receive the emblems this morning, I'm going to ask that you would hold them, and using the center aisles, we'll make our way down to receive them and make our way back. And will you hold the emblems until we can all receive them together, but using the outside aisles to make your way back to the seats. We'll, we'll take time to thank the Lord and we'll take time to pray, and then we'll receive these together as a family. So I invite you to stand this morning. Will you stand with me this morning? We're rejoicing. Amen? God sees, God hears, God knows, and God has come to bring deliverance. I want to invite you where you're at. If you would just simply make your way to the center aisles here and come and uh, receive these emblems, taking them back to our seats, and we'll together receive these after prayer in just a moment.
As we think about the Passover in the book of Exodus, um, we're reminded as Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, they were taking Passover and they were there in the upper room. And uh, before this, early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, the Gospel of John records for us in John chapter 6, Jesus says this to the multitudes. He said, I am the bread of life. Hallelujah. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And Jesus was prepping the people for the very types that Pastor David talked about this morning, that Jesus is this type of the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain, who took away the sins of the world. Jesus was prepping the people because he was then, on that night there in the upper room, he says, this is my body. And he breaks the bread and he says, take and eat as often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, uh, he, he instructs them doing the same. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he had broke it, and he said, this is my body. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning, once a month here at Hillside, we take the communion, and uh, we break bread, and we partake it, and we remember what Christ has done for us. But I want to encourage you guys that it's not just a once a month thing. I was uh, with the interns at lunch. Uh, it was last week. And we weren't eating matzo bread. We weren't drinking grape juice. We were just having burgers and soda, you know. But as Dan prayed for our meal, Dan said, man, we do this in honor and remembrance of what the Lord did for us. And so I want to encourage you guys. Every time you eat, brothers and sisters together, remember what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. So as we take this bread, I want to pray for it the way they prayed for it in the first century. And this is what the first century church would pray. They would say, God, we give thanks for the life and the knowledge which you have revealed to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And as this bread, this broken bread was scattered from the mountains and it has been gathered together to become one bread, so too may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom for your glory, for your power, through Jesus Christ forever. Let's take up the bread together. Amen. Amen. The cup we hold this morning is a representation of the cup that is included in that Seder meal, that Passover meal. Four times a cup is received during the Seder meal, the Passover, as given an instruction. The cup after supper is known as the cup of redemption. And so we hold what Jesus would have referred to as the cup of redemption. And he said of that cup, no longer is redemption found in the blood of bulls and of rams, but in the shed blood of Jesus Christ the shed blood. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. Our redemption is found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The beauty is after Christ died upon the cross at Calvary, shedding his own blood for the remission of our sin, death had no hold on him. Three days later, he rose affirming that all he had said was true. By participating and receiving this cup today, you are making a declaration. Individually, you are saying, I choose to be a part of the new covenant. Father, we thank you for your great plan of salvation. We ask, Lord, today that as we partake of this cup, publicly declaring that our faith is in Christ, for the forgiveness of our sin. We declare again the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you thanks. Let's partake of the cup together this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Pastor Dennis, will you close us with that chorus one more time? Oh, what a Savior. 